Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio and I love all things tech. And in our last episode, we talked about the founding of Volkswagen, how designer, engineer, and entrepreneur Ferdinand Porsche and his son, also Ferdinand Porsche, but known as Ferry, uh, responded to a call from Adolf Hitler to design a people's car and how that led to establishing Volkswagen as a company. We also talked about how the manufacturing facility would switch gears, so to speak, to go into wartime production for the German military during World War II, how that made the new Volkswagen facility a target during Allied bombing runs, and how a British officer named Hearst campaign to return the manufacturing plant back to its originally intended purpose, producing civilian automobiles. And then we talked a lot about the Volkswagen Beetle. But there's more to cover than just the old love bug. So what else did Volkswagen, the company, do over the years? Well, for the first few years after World War II, the company focused exclusively on building the Type 1. That's the car that was known in the U.S. as the aforementioned Beetle, or the Volkswagen Bug, the first priority for the company was producing cars to be used by British officials, who were largely in charge of running Germany after Germany's surrender after World War II. In 1948, after successfully restoring the manufacturing facility to working order, the British government tried to find someone else to take over the facility. They offered it up to companies and agencies in France, Australia, Britain, and the United States, but no one was eager to take them up on it. A year later, the British military found the person to take over the operations, a man named Heinrich Nordhoff. Nordhoff was born in Germany and had worked for a company called Opel, O-P-E-L, a property of U.S. automotive company General Motors. During World War II, he oversaw the production of trucks. Uh, that facility also reportedly relied, at least in part, on forced labor, just as Volkswagen had during World War II. After the war, the British military relied on Heinrich's expertise and eventually made him the managing director of the Volkswagen facility, mainly due to the urging of Major Hurst, the British official who had taken it over. Nordhoff was able to ramp up production beyond the relatively modest levels that the British military had managed. He optimized processes, he made the whole operation more efficient, and he doubled the manufacturing output in short order. And technically, it was around this time that the company would officially adopt Volkswagen as its name. It would become one of the more important manufacturing companies in the nation of West Germany, with the region of Lower Saxony in West Germany receiving a 20% voting stake in Volkswagen. The company made Type 1 models with different engine capacities, the earliest being the modest 1100cc or 1.1 liter engine. That worked fine for the early days of motoring in post-war Germany, but it didn't quite match the expectations for people living in other markets. So the manufacturing facility began making Type 1 vehicles with slightly beefier engines. While operations were picking up, financial limitations meant that the company wasn't really able to focus too much on expanding beyond the Type 1 car. Enter Ben Pohn. Pohn was a car dealer in the Netherlands who imported Volkswagens to sell them in his home country. He had taken over his father's business 
which originally was all about selling sewing machines, but had gradually over time added things like bicycles, motorized bikes and motorcycles, and then cars to its list of products. After World War II, he visited the Volkswagen plant and he was impressed by the Type 1 vehicle. He and the company came to an agreement that would make Ben Pohn's dealership the first outside of Germany to offer the Type 1, the VW Beetle. And while at the facility, Pohn saw a curious vehicle. Now, it was built on top of a Type 1 chassis, but it definitely didn't look like a VW Beetle. So imagine a pickup truck. Now imagine that the bed of the truck isn't behind the cab where the driver sits, but is instead in front of the cab. Now remember, the Type 1 was a rear-engine, rear-wheel drive vehicle. So in this design, you would have the engine mounted on the back of the chassis. Above the engine compartment would be a cab where the driver would sit. So the engine is essentially under the driver's seating area. The area in front of the cab was a flat platform upon which workers could put parts to transport them to other areas within the manufacturing facility. So it's kind of like a forklift, only without the lift part because the platform on the chassis didn't move. It was called a Plattenwagen. Pond saw this and thought, hey, you know, post-war Europe is really going to need some commercial vehicles for businesses of various sizes so that everything can get up and running again. And the chassis for this little car can be used for lots of different types of builds. So Pond then starts to sketch out an idea. His design called for a small van built on top of the Type 1 chassis. The driver and passenger of the van would sit up front in a cab that was at the extreme front end of the vehicle. And this was made possible because, again, the engine for the vehicle would be in the back. So think of things like your typical school bus where that has that flat front, those style school buses. That's what this one would be like, too, in a way. The body they sketched out was essentially a box, and the idea was that such a vehicle would be able to carry a good deal of materials or passengers and serve as a light commercial vehicle in Europe. Pohn also said he would want such a vehicle to weigh around 750 kilograms when empty. That's about 1,650 pounds, and that it should be able to carry uh, essentially an equal amount of weight. Now, Pohn wasn't in the manufacturing business himself. He was a car dealer, not a car maker. So he handed over his design to his contacts at Volkswagen. Nordoff and his technical director, Alfred Hesner, looked over Pohn's design and they liked it. They particularly liked that it would make use of a chassis that the plant was already producing. So in their mind, they said, well, there would be no need to develop, test, and build a new chassis. So that cuts down on the development cost of getting into producing this vehicle. So with these bonuses in mind, they decided to pursue this new vehicle model. It took a little time to schedule a prototype because they were still in full production mode for the Type 1, and they then finally got things going. It only took three months from the point where they started the process to when they could roll off a prototype, uh, but along the way, they also learned some valuable lessons. Now, as it turned out, the weight of this new vehicle and the weight that it would ultimately hold would require Volkswagen to go back and tweak the chassis after all because... It just wasn't going to be strong enough to carry 3,000 or more pounds of weight if you're talking about a fully loaded uh, vehicle. So 
they went back and built a ladder chassis. That's called a ladder chassis because it kind of looks like a ladder. So you know how a ladder has two long rails that are connected by rungs? A ladder chassis is sort of the same way. It's the chassis or the base of a vehicle, and it has those sort of horizontal rungs running across to provide more strength and more stability. So it gives the chassis a stronger frame. Despite this unexpected cost, the project did continue, and Volkswagen engineers had another challenge, how to make a a Volkswagen engine power a vehicle that could, at max weight, top out at around 3,000 pounds or 1,500 kilograms. Um, So to do that, they looked at one of the vehicles that the factory had made during World War II. That'd be the Kubelwagen. Now, if you listen to my last episode, you know that this was the lightweight, two-wheeled, general-purpose military vehicle, sort of the German equivalent to the United States Jeep. And Volkswagen had produced these during the war. The vehicle the Kubelwagen, that is, had a reduction gear system to manage torque. And so the VW engineers took that design and then adapted it for this new commercial vehicle. Now, beyond these mechanical challenges, Volkswagen faced some other hurdles. One was that when they tested this design in wind tunnels, this boxy shaped bus wasn't shaping up to be particularly useful. The wind resistance was considerable, meaning that the engine was going to have to work even harder to move the vehicle, and thus you would waste fuel. Designers began to make some changes to the structure, including a split windshield design that was divided down the front. Eventually, all the pieces fell into place, and on November 12, 1949, the first of the Volkswagen Type 2 models rolled off the production line. By the way, you should consider that date to have an asterisk by it, because this is one of those cases where I found multiple sources, all with different dates listed for that first Type 2. So, depending on some, that figure could be off by as much as a year, but that was the one that I found that seemed to be the most reliable resource. So, again, uh, 1949-ish. Now, the Type 2 has many names. In the United States, you would typically hear it described as the VW bus. In other places, it was called the Combi, which is short for combination vehicle. More on that in a second. Or the Splitty, because it had that split windshield. Or in Germany, it was called the VW Bully, among many other names. At Volkswagen, the Combi, K-O-M-B-I version, referred to a type of Volkswagen uh, bus that had either uh, side windows and removable seats, which meant that you could actually put passengers in there and it should be fairly comfortable, or you could get a second version called the commercial that had no windows on the side. It was meant to be a cargo van, so it wasn't meant to carry people in the back. If you were in the back of one of those, it'd be very dark and probably a little scary. And then uh, it would emerge in the early 1950s, but here in the United States, it would really take off about a decade later. Uh, It would become a symbol of the counterculture movement, and many people would associate it with hippies. Now, the funny thing to me is that the whole reason for the Type 2 to exist in the first place was that Ben Pone wanted a low-cost, efficient vehicle to help European businesses get up and running after the war. He wanted something that was easy to work on, easy to maintain. It was meant to be affordable and utilitarian, in other words. Not fancy, not necessarily sought after, but useful. 
Years later, after Volkswagen ended production on the Type 2, some of those early models would end up bringing huge auction prices among avid collectors and avid Volkswagen fans. Some of them sold for several hundred thousand dollars, quite the opposite of Ben Pone's initial vision. The Type 2 was an instant success in Europe, so much so that the demand actually required Volkswagen to invest in a new manufacturing facility so that it could meet its production goals for both the Type 1, the Beetle, and the Type 2, the bus. The company selected a site in Hanover to build a new manufacturing facility, and that plant became the main center of operations focused on building Volkswagen vehicles for the commercial sector. Now, I can't really get into every single vehicle Volkswagen had produced over the course of its entire history. Uh, There are a lot of them that only appeared in specific markets and were virtually unknown elsewhere in the world. So I would be spending all my time trying to explain why a certain car would appear in certain places of the world but wasn't found anywhere else. But this one story that I want to convey next is really interesting, particularly to me. And it shows how different companies were willing to come together and collaborate when there was opportunity to tap into an emerging market. Okay, so by the mid-1950s, Europe was transitioning from recovery and into a more booming economy. You know, and immediately after World War II, it was all about how can we get back to where we were? Then it was, we're actually prospering. For the automotive industry, this meant that there was a chance to make a more upscale vehicle, something with a bit more luxury than a workhorse Type 1 Beetle or a Type 2 Microbus. And there were three different companies that would come together to do this with uh, for the Volkswagen picture, one of them being Volkswagen. The other two I'll get into. Uh, in fact, one of them was a company, a German company called Carmen, spelled K-A-R-M-A-N-N. It was founded by a dude named Wilhelm Carmen. And this company traced its history all the way back to 1901, although... That company was built on top of an even older coach-building business that was run by a guy named Christian Klages. Wilhelm oversaw the coach-building business transition over to an automotive industry right away. Mainly, his company would build car bodies. So he would use car chassis that were made by other manufacturers. He wasn't building that part. He would bring the chassis and then design and build car bodies on top of it. So his business had gone into hibernation during World War II, and he essentially was not doing any of that business while the war was going on. But afterward, he got back into production, and then Volkswagen placed an order for convertible tops for the Type 1 Beetle for a variation known as the Cabriolet. So Carmen and Volkswagen had a previously established working relationship. But that was just one of the other two companies that worked with Volkswagen on this new concept. And when we come back, I'll talk about the other one. But first, let's take a quick break. All right, before the break, I was teasing about that third party. And the third party that I have hinted at was the Italian automobile design company Carrozzeria Ghia. And I know I've butchered the pronunciation as I do all languages. But this was a company that was established by Giacinto Ghia at the early 20th century. And the company didn't produce cars. They weren't a car manufacturer. 
They designed cars. They might build a limited number of cars, but it was in a very painstaking, uh, almost handmade kind of approach. So Gia would work with a lot of other automotive companies, designing their car bodies or sometimes just specific elements on a car. So for example, in the 1930s, Gia worked on the body for a Fiat 508S Spider sports car. Now during World War II, Carrozzeria Gia's facilities were all but destroyed. Giacinto Gia wanted to rebuild, but before he could oversee those efforts, he took ill and then he passed away in 1944. His company, however, would live on after his death. His widow gave the company over to Felice Mario Boana and Giorgio Albert. So Buono, in turn, would later bring in a businessman named Luigi Segre, who pushed the company to make more international contracts. This ultimately led to Segre uh, effectively taking over Ghia. So we now get to the weird part of this story. Wilhelm Karman thought that the chassis of the Volkswagen Type 1 would serve as the basis for a much more sporty body than the Volkswagen Beetle. And he thought that that would be a valuable thing to pursue. However, Nordhoff over at Volkswagen wasn't particularly interested. So he turned elsewhere. You see, Carmen had run into Luigi Segre several times at various automotive industry events in Europe. So he met up with Segre to talk about the possibility of developing a sports car on top of a Volkswagen Type 1 chassis. There was no real hope of getting Volkswagen on board from the get-go. Nordhoff, you know, again, the head of Volkswagen, he was more focused on producing cars for the average European it didn't really see the, the business case for more sporty vehicles. So Segre agreed to have Carrozzeria Ghia design a prototype after getting hold of a Type 1 Volkswagen. They literally bought a Volkswagen Beetle and they drove it over to Ghia's headquarters in Turin and then they stripped it bare all the way down to the chassis in order to build a brand new body on top of it. Now this was to become the prototype for the Carmen Ghia. And there's controversy surrounding who actually designed the look of the thing. If you've never seen one, you should look up Carmen Ghia on the internet. And it's, as I said, K-A-R-M-A-N-N, and Ghia is G-H-I-A. Look it up, because it's a sporty little car. I think it's adorable, really cute. And there were some who said that Mario Boano was clearly the designer with the most input in the design process. Other people dispute that. They said, no, it was this other designer who did all that work. And some people say, you know what? They actually pretty much lifted the design from an entirely different car manufacturer. And there's a lot of back and forth online in various uh, car forums about this. So I just don't know the real truth here. There's way too much conflicting information out there, and I don't know who's right and who's wrong. So Rather than report on all of that, we'll just say there's some controversy. Anyway, so about a year after Luigi Segre had first met with Wilhelm Carmen about this project, he presented Carmen with the prototype. And Carmen loved it. And he immediately said that he wanted his company to produce the bodies for this type of car using Ghia's design. But there was still one little piece of the puzzle that was missing, which was the fact that they needed to get the chassis from Volkswagen. So Carmen goes to Nordoff and he pitches this idea. And according to Carmen, I don't know if this is actually true, but it's according to his own records of it, 
Norloff's first reaction upon seeing the Carmen Ghia prototype was to say that it was really pretty, but way too expensive. And Carmen then said, I haven't even mentioned a price yet. How can you say it's too expensive if you haven't heard what I think it'll cost? So again, I have no clue if that particular part of the story is actually true or not. But what is indisputable is that the various parties were able to come to an agreement, and thus the Volkswagen Carmen Ghia was born. Like the Type 1, it had a rear-mounted, air-cooled engine, but it definitely looked more sleek than the Beetle. Over the lifetime of its production, which spanned from 1955 to 1974, it would come with four different engine capacities. So at the low end, you had 1,200 cc, you know, 1,200 cubic centimeters or 1.2 liters, and you got all the way up to 1,600 cc or 1.6 liters. Now, I'm not really a car guy, but I do have to say there's a lot about the Carmen Ghia that I find particularly appealing. It's just like I said, cute. Plus the fact that it relied on the same chassis and style of engine as the Volkswagen Beetle meant that it was relatively easy to maintain and to work on, which is becoming pretty darn rare these days with modern vehicles because they're incorporating more and more computer technology and proprietary bolts and stuff like that. It's harder for you to be able to work on a car that you get for yourself. So This harkens back to an age where people could actually do their own maintenance on their vehicles if they had the know-how and the desire to do so. Oh, and one other thing. Uh, The name Carmen Ghia would also be used by Mel Brooks as the name for a supporting character in his film The Producers. Though in that case, the character's name was spelled as Carmen, C-A-R-M-E-N. However, I love that movie, so I had to give that shout out. So, by the mid-1950s, Volkswagen had its workhorse Type 1 that was doing well throughout Europe and was starting to pick up sales in the United States. It was starting to get popular. The Type 2 passed 1 million cars produced by 1955, so it very quickly became a pretty popular workhorse itself. And the Carmen Ghia switched things up by adding a sporty option. Volkswagen's motto around this time was, It is a member of my family. Aww. I like that a lot more than the motto I remember with Volkswagen, but that we'll have to save for the next episode. Anyway, the company appeared to be fulfilling the initial promise of being the people's car. In 1961, Volkswagen began producing a two-wheel drive convertible called the Type 181. That's what it was called internally. And it was meant as a vehicle for the Army of West Germany. And it looked like a descendant of the old Kubelwagen that Volkswagen had been producing in World War II. Under the surface of this angular and flat metal sheets that made up the body, the Type 181 was really similar to the Type 1 and Type 2 mechanical systems. So very similar chassis, very similar engine. It sported removable and interchangeable doors, so you could take the doors off the side of the thing if you wanted, kind of like a Jeep. Uh, And you didn't have to worry about which ones were the front doors or the back doors because they were all interchangeable. The windshield itself could also be folded down, so you could drive this thing with no windshield up if you wanted and you didn't mind the taste of bugs. They would all go on the market for consumers as well as the military, and here in the United States, we called it the Volkswagen Thing. The Thing. You should look that up on Google Images if you haven't seen this before, because it's pretty funky looking too. The company stopped producing them in 1983, so there hasn't been a new Volkswagen Thing for a few decades. Uh, There's still collectors who buy and sell the things, 
They go for around $16,000 to $25,000 from what I've seen, which is pretty expensive for a car that's that old and is not like a sports car or a luxury car or anything like that. It's more of a curiosity. Also in 1961, Volkswagen would debut its Type 3 vehicle. Now remember, Type 1 were Beetles, Type 2 were the Volkswagen buses. So what the heck was Type 3? Well, it's a compact car that, while larger than the Beetle, still wasn't very big. It was still a, a pretty compact vehicle. It was meant to provide more space in the car for passengers and for luggage, while maintaining many of the common features of the previous types. That meant the engines in the cars were still air-cooled, uh, air they were still rear-mounted, uh, but they were a little bit bigger, you know, had a larger engine volume than the Beetles typically did, and they were in a slightly different configuration. You see, they were in what some people call a pancake engine style. And that was because it was meant to take up less vertical space. It, it was a, a, a flat sort of engine that could fit underneath the trunk space of the back of the car. See, this actually meant that the designers could create trunk space both in the front and the back of the Type 3 vehicles. You could open up the front, and that was storage space, and you could open up the back, and there was more storage space underneath which was a hinged panel. And if you lift up the hinged panel, you would actually be looking at the engine. So it had a lot more storage space than your typical Volkswagens did at the time. Uh, there were three main body styles that made up the Type 3 chassis. Uh, there was the fast back, the square back, and the notch back. Now, in the United States, only the square back and fast back versions were imported officially. And they became popular cars among certain subcultures, particularly the surfing community. They became really popular with surfers. Now, today, they are sought after by collectors because they haven't been made in decades. They, they, Volkswagen stopped making Type 3 cars in 1973, so a lot of them just aren't in working order anymore. So to find one that still works, that's in good condition, is considered a rarity, and the collectors eagerly pay lots of money to get hold of these cars. In the mid-1960s, Volkswagen leader Nordhoff led the company to acquire Audi, which was previously owned by Daimler-Benz. Audi has its own rather complicated story. It was founded in the early 20th century by a guy named August Horch, who founded a couple of different automobile companies, but Audi was the one that really succeeded. It produced its first car in 1910, and over the following two decades, it would merge with other automotive companies I mean, seriously, tracing the history of some of these car companies is maddening because of the various mergers and acquisitions and changes in ownership. And complicating matters is that, like Volkswagen, Audi produced vehicles for the Axis powers during World War II. But unlike Volkswagen, when Germany got split into two countries, into East and West Germany, Audi's headquarters happened to be in East Germany, which fell under the control of the Soviet Union. So that meant that Audi as a company essentially dissolved at that point. But the executives were determined to bring it back, to launch it again in a less hostile environment. They established a new center of operations in Bavaria in West Germany at a manufacturing facility that had previously made spare parts for the company. Now it was going to be the center of their operations. In 1959, Daimler-Benz purchased an 87% stake in Audi, but didn't really have a whole lot to do with their new purchase. Over time, Volkswagen acquired a stake, which was up to a 50% stake in 1964. 
When Volkswagen made a move to buy the manufacturing facilities from Audi, the plan wasn't really to nurture Audi into a luxury car brand of its own. Instead, Volkswagen intended to turn Audi's manufacturing facilities to the purpose of building yet more Volkswagen Beetles, you know, the good old Type 1. The Audi executives who had worked so hard to keep their company going even after losing their production facilities to East Germany weren't going to give up so easily. So they did something sneaky. They secretly developed a prototype for what would become the first Audi 100. That was a full-sized sedan, and it aimed at a slightly higher-level upscale market than the Beetle did. So for people who had a little bit more income and they wanted to have more space you know, and a larger vehicle. They pitched it to Volkswagen head Nordhoff once they had built the prototype, again, doing it completely without authorization. Nordhoff was actually impressed, and he agreed to add the vehicle to Volkswagen's production plans under the Audi brand name. And so Audi, the auto brand, thus survived. By this time, there were people in and around Volkswagen who were growing concerned about the company. Nordhoff was frequently targeted by critics. They said that he was just being too conservative and he wasn't moving quickly enough to establish new Volkswagen models and and car types. There was a worry that the company was far too dependent upon the aging Type 1 Beetle that was quickly getting left behind by other car companies. Meanwhile, Nordhoff was considering the head of Volkswagen of America, a guy named Dr. Carl Hahn, to become his successor. Nordhoff was planning to retire. However, that wouldn't happen. Nordhoff would have a heart attack in 1967, and he would pass away the following year, in April of 1968. That was the year he had actually intended to retire. He was going to retire at the end of 68. And the company's board of directors had already chosen his successor, Kurt Lotz, who was going to take over the company upon uh, Nordhoff's retirement, but obviously had to take on the job six months earlier than planned. During World War II, Lotz had served as a general staff officer for the Luftwaffe. After the war, he worked at the German subsidiary of a Swiss electrical company, eventually rising to the level of chairman before differences between Lotz and the leaders on the Swiss parent company prompted Lotz to leave the company. He was brought into Volkswagen with the intent of replacing Nordhoff upon Nordhoff's retirement, as I mentioned, but he would take the job much earlier. And so here's a person from outside the organization coming in to take over the reins. Lotz's vision for Volkswagen was to make much larger steps away from the company's dependence on the Type 1 Beetle. And so he started to authorize lots of new car models, both under Volkswagen and under the Audi brands. He wanted to consider other designs and aim for different markets. Europe was a much different place in the late 1960s than it had been just after World War II, and Volkswagen's international markets were growing in importance. In fact, Volkswagen had been building assembly plants in places like Australia, Brazil, and Mexico in order to meet that demand, and the U.S. market in particular was really growing pretty quickly. One interesting fact, just as Lotz was looking to move away from that Volkswagen Beetle, the car hit its peak popularity in the United States. It would mark the year when the U.S. would buy the most uh, Volkswagen Beetles in the history of the country, you know, having that availability. But Lotz was right that sticking to the old Type 1 was not going to be a sustainable business model for the long run. In 1969, Lotz oversaw the acquisition of another company called NSU Motorenwerke. Like Karman, this uh, company didn't start out 
in the auto business. Uh, instead, a German businessman named Christian Schmidt founded it back in 1873, and it was initially a company that made knitting machines. But over time, the company would relocate, it would grow, it would evolve, and it started to change its manufacturing processes to build other stuff because clearly knitting machines were not going to remain relevant forever. And so they started making stuff like bicycles and then motorcycles and then eventually cars. The company didn't have an entirely smooth history. Uh, In the 1930s, facing financial crisis, NSU was forced to sell its auto manufacturing facility in uh, in Heilbronn to Fiat, for example. And so Fiat and NSU worked together on several vehicles. Like all manufacturing facilities in Europe, it changed over to produce supplies for the armed forces during World War II. And after the war, it went back into manufacturing vehicles for civilians, including motorcycles and cars. The company was in a rough patch in the late 1960s when Volkswagen acquired it, merging it with the Audi division to create Audi NSU. The NSU brand would only stick around a few more years before being discontinued completely in 1977. All right, I've got a little more to say about Volkswagen's transition during the 70s after we come back. In 1971, Kurt Lotz, who had only led the company since 1968, when Heinrich Nordhoff had passed away, stepped down as the head of Volkswagen. Lotz had come into conflict with the powerful trade unions that still owned a stake in the company. And those differences were insurmountable. Uh, Lotz's politics and the union politics were pretty much in opposition with one another, and Lotz just didn't have the ability to override the trade unions. They just, they held too much ownership of the company, so he couldn't really do what he wanted to do, and he was more or less forced to resign. His replacement was Rudolf Leidling, And unlike Lotz, Leiding had been with the company for nearly 30 years. He had started his career at Volkswagen in the 1940s and had been in charge of establishing an assembly line process when Volkswagen was emerging from the wreckage of World War II. He was known to be a tough boss, which is putting it lightly. He was a guy who would monitor employees coming in at the morning and making sure he, you know, made note of anyone who showed up late to work. He had a reputation for holding people accountable for their deliverables, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but the stories I read made it sound like he wasn't exactly approachable. His goal was to have a smooth-running operation, and he wasn't shy about addressing issues he saw as an impediment to that goal. So, in other words, he was a tough customer, you know, a tough cookie. Lighting concluded that the company had perhaps erred too far in an attempt to get away from the Volkswagen Beetle dependency. He did agree that it didn't make sense to stay dependent upon the Type 1, but he judged that Volkswagen and its subsidiaries had developed and launched cars at great expense, and those cars had limited value on the market. So in other words, the company was backing too many ideas without really testing whether or not those ideas had any merit. So he dedicated the company to a more focused approach when it came to developing plans for cars. Lighting also wanted to maximize efficiency by using the same basic components for all vehicles produced by Volkswagen. Doing so would cut back drastically on costs. There'd be differences from model to model, you know, things would look very different, but underneath, they would share much of the same bones, right? The same structure. This was pretty much the same strategy Volkswagen had employed when it introduced the Volkswagen bus decades earlier. 
It was in 1972 that Volkswagen announced it had produced more Type 1 vehicles, the Volkswagen Beetle, than Ford had made of Model T cars, which meant that the Volkswagen Beetle would become the most popular or most produced car in history, at that time anyway. And the following year, in 1973, Volkswagen would introduce a new car that was a bigger departure for the company, and this would be the Volkswagen Passat. Now, 1973 and 1974 would be really tough years for Europe in general, and Volkswagen in particular. There was an economic recession that was hitting Europe pretty hard, and auto sales were down as a result. And part of the cause for this uh, was the oil crisis of the early 1970s. So while Volkswagen was introducing a new type of car, it was also dealing with disappointing sales figures, and it was pretty rough. The Passat, as I mentioned, marked a departure for Volkswagen. Now, beneath the exterior, the Passat was essentially the same as an Audi 80 sedan. And remember, Audi was now part of the Volkswagen group. But the style was different from all other Volkswagen vehicles. All of the previous Volkswagen vehicles had been rear-engine, rear-wheel drive vehicles. The Passat was and is, to this day, a front-engine, front-wheel drive vehicle. And it was much larger, is a much bigger car than what Volkswagen was typically used to producing, and considered to be a large family vehicle rather than a compact car. So uh, in North America, the original Passat would be called the Volkswagen Dasher. Now, this type of vehicle wasn't that different from the, the cars that Audi was producing, but that was under the Audi brand, not the Volkswagen brand. So that's why it was a pretty big change uh, for Volkswagen. The Passat didn't immediately save the company, however. The financial crisis was hitting it hard, and the company posted a loss in 1974 that was equivalent to $336 million. Now, in 1974, I mean, even today, that's a princely sum, but in 1974, that was a, a pretty huge amount. And to make matters worse, it marked the first time Volkswagen had ever experienced a loss ever. So its first loss was a considerable one. Lighting would end up getting a lot of pressure and would end up stepping down as the managing director of the company in early 1975. He was replaced by another guy named Tony Schmucker, who had previously worked for Ford's operations in Germany. So again, Schmucker came in from outside of Volkswagen. He was not someone who had been working at the company for a while. Before his departure, Lighting had overseen the development of the Volkswagen Golf, also known as the Volkswagen Rabbit in America. This car, which still has models that come out today, was meant as a replacement for the Volkswagen Beetle. So this was another compact car that was meant to take the same place in the market as the Beetle. It looks very different from the Beetle, but it was meant to aim at that same sort of driver. Like the Passat, it has a front engine and front wheel drive. It's smaller than the Passat, uh, but it would ultimately become Volkswagen's best-selling model. At the time, no one knew if it was going to be successful or not. And based on my research, I'd say much of the losses that Volkswagen experienced were really outside of Rudolf Leiding's control, whereas the decisions he made would end up leading to some of the company's biggest gains later on. So while he, his tenure was short, and while he took a lot of blame for the losses that the company experienced, uh, it may be more honest to say that he helped save the company. He just wasn't around long enough to see the results of that work pay off. 
Schmucker would end up laying off 25,000 employees in 1975. He shut down an assembly plant in Australia. He almost did the same to the manufacturing facilities in Mexico and Brazil, but instead decided to reorganize and restructure them and make them more efficient. In 1978, he actually would do the reverse because now the company's fortunes were on the rise again. So he oversaw the opening of a manufacturing facility in Pennsylvania, as in the United States of America. This would make Volkswagen the first foreign car company to open up an assembly plant in the U.S. in nearly 50 years. The reason they did this is because, again, the United States was becoming an enormous customer for Volkswagen, like a, a huge market. They had seen incredible success with the Beetle, and the Golf was starting to take off as well. So they wanted to build a facility in the same country where they were having a lot of customers. So that's why they did that. Now, between Lighting's decisions to invest in the Golf and Schmucker's cost-cutting measures, the company returned to being profitable in short order. They were making a profit again by 1975. So they were able to recover from the massive crisis of 1973 and 1974. The Golf was poised to take up the mantle that had previously been worn by the Beetle, and Volkswagen still had a lot of obstacles to overcome. One big one was that Japanese automakers were starting to make some serious progress in markets outside of Japan itself. Japanese cars were starting to become popular. They were known for being inexpensive and reliable. And so this was a serious threat to Volkswagen. Uh, So that became a new source of competition for the company. Schmucker would remain the head of Volkswagen until 1982, at which point he was forced to resign due to declining health. His successor was the man whom Heinrich Nordhoff had wanted to lead the company all the way back in 1967, this being Dr. Karl Hahn, the previous head of Volkswagen of America. He had been away from Volkswagen for several years prior to 1982, but he did come back to assume the role of chairman of the board. Also, uh, around that time, the company signed a cooperation agreement with a Spanish car maker called Seat. That cooperation would blossom over the years, with Volkswagen taking a majority stake in Seat in 1986 before acquiring the company entirely in 1990. All right, so I'm going to kind of wrap up this episode at this point because we still have more to talk about. And I want to make sure that I cover all of it. So we're going to have a part three to this series. So we'll talk about other cars that Volkswagen produced after this time, stuff like the Jetta, which I know my producer Tari wants me to talk about because she used to drive one. And we'll talk about the new Beetle, the the resurgence of the Volkswagen Beetle when uh, it came back in the 1990s under a new style. And we'll talk about uh, Volkswagen's plans for the future with its its uh, you know its its experimental steps into electric car territory, as well as, of course, the controversy around the diesel emissions testing scandal. So we have all of that to look forward to in the next episode. But if you have any requests or suggestions for future episodes, you can get in touch with me and let me know what those are. The best way to do it is on social media over on Facebook and Twitter. We are TechStuffHSW. So just uh, let us know over there. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 